Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Jay Logan Smilgis about access, anti-ableism, justice and agency, trans-feminist rhetorics, queer studies, and disability. Jay Logan Smilgis is an assistant professor of language, culture, and gender studies at Texas Woman's University. Led by commitments to transfeminism and disability justice, their scholarship and teaching lie at the nexus of disability studies, trans studies, queer studies, and rhetorical studies. Their first book, Queer Silence, on disability and rhetorical absence, is impressed with the University of Minnesota Press, and their other writing can be found or is forthcoming in Disability Studies Quarterly, College Composition and Communication, Rhetoric Review, and elsewhere. Currently, Smilgis serves as the co-chair for the Disability Studies Standing Group at the Conference on College Composition and Communication. Logan, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about access-oriented pedagogy. And I I know this is a, a rather large first question, but how do you define access? And how does this definition and framework inform your overall approach to teaching writing? Thank you so much. I really appreciate the thoughtful question and the space to kind of talk through these issues, which I think a lot of people are, are becoming more interested in um, and, and more excited about, which in turn excites me. I, I honestly think that asking to define access is a really important question. Um, one, because a lot of folks just don't think about access at all. And two, a lot of folks misunderstand access. Often in an academic setting, access is reduced to accommodation. And the idea is, all right, here we have a student who is unable to do the things that their peers are doing, um, or is unable to do them at the speed that their peers are doing them. Um, and so we need to accommodate by giving extra time or by having you know, someone to take notes or you know, whatever it is. Um, but access at least as I understand it, and I am very much informed by the work of disability justice activists um, who are primarily disabled people of color and queer and trans disabled people who define access from a collective sense that is um, deeply liberatory. And so for me, access is not about realigning non-disabled people with non-disabled people, but rather is about really re-envisioning the expectations that we have for anyone to do anything at any pace. So um, in, the, in the classroom then, I, I'm really uh, kind of smitten with, uh, with a notion of access that puts pressure on the expectations we have for students to learn particular concepts um, within, uh, you know, or like by a deadline, um, and to produce certain amounts of work that somehow um, kind of testify to that knowledge. And so I'm, I'm always looking for ways of, of reimagining what learning can be in ways that honor the very unique and particular capacities and needs of all of our students. I think you know, disability studies and disability justice work and approach to teaching 
often focuses on anti-ableism. So what are some anti-ableist practices that help you center access through teaching? What does it kind of look like to do this work as a teacher? The valuable thing about anti-ableism as even a word is that it brings to mind other forms of anti-discrimination, right? Anti-racism, anti-sexism. And what all of these kind of frameworks have in common is that they, they approach discrimination not just as something that people consciously do, but also as something that's uncon- often unconsciously just informs the way that we live our lives because we're benefiting from systems that are designed to benefit us, right? Um, and so as it pertains to anti-ableism, I think it's really important that teachers of writing realize that they don't have to be explicitly or intentionally ableist in order to be complicit in an ableist world and in an ableist curriculum or kind of education system. I think that there is an assumption, perhaps, among a lot of writing instructors that there is such a thing as good writing and that there is such a thing as bad writing. And and I know that there are folks from lots of different um you know, minority or culturally engaged perspectives who kind of critique this division between good and bad. Um, but what I think disability studies and anti-ableism brings that's unique is uh, a critique of, of the very uh, skill of writing, that kind of translation of thoughts to words on a page, um, as a skill that requires certain, um, like, certain capacities and abilities that not everyone shares and that just because not everyone shares them doesn't necessarily mean that they're not learning or they're not able to communicate their learning in other ways. And so I think from a a theoretical, it becomes practical, but from a theoretical perspective, it falls on writing instructors to reimagine like what writing is and like how we expect students to, to communicate how they're feeling or what they think about particular topics. And I recognize that a responsibility or such a call, uh, such as, you know, reimagine what writing is, is a lot to ask, especially for those instructors who are working within institutional contexts that have lots of requirements uh, for how their curriculum is meant to be uh, kind of conveyed uh, or offered to students. And all, I think that's doubly so for instructors who our graduate students are contingent and want to make sure that they're doing things the way the institution wants them to or, you know, be at risk of, um, of losing their, losing their jobs. And so in, in a lot of ways, I think about anti-ableism as both a responsibility that writing instructors have for their students, but also as, as something that can be turned, that, that writing instructors can turn back at the institutions that they work for themselves, right? Because anti-ableism is also something that can benefit writing, that can offer protections in institutional contexts that would, like, allow instructors more freedom to, to offer the curriculum that they, the way they want to. Logan, I feel like the words justice and power and agency come to mind as possible themes, and those are probably more definitions that, that we could unpack. I also know that your teaching and research interests are in gender, queer, and trans rhetorics. 
Maybe you could share how, how writing teachers can consider these theories and praxis and, and what they mean for teaching first-year writing in particular. Absolutely. I think that to answer the first part of your question, the definitional questions about justice and agency, um, I, I'm rather um, taken with queer, um, queer antisocial perspectives and Afro-pessimistic perspectives um, that would say justice um, doesn't really exist so long as we are like occupying the world that we are right now. And that it's actually really, really difficult to imagine a world that is just when we have no precedent for justice. And I think along similar lines, it's very difficult for me to think about agency as anything that can be offered justly or that can be distributed equitably. Um, but rather that both justice and agency are, are stratified, are contingent, um, and, and just, and deeply exclusionary in the sense that in order to offer, offer a sense of justice or agency to some, it requires the dispossession and disavowal of most others. Um, and I, so I think in the context of a first year writing classroom. I, I believe that one of the greatest gifts of writing is the capacity to, to imagine other worlds, worlds that are perhaps residually informed by, but nevertheless starkly depart from the world that we know. And so I see the first year writing classroom as, as really um, an opportunity to introduce students to that kind of liberatory approach to writing. Um, and, and so I spend a lot of time in my own classes talking less about, well, I shouldn't say less about because it might get me in trouble, but equally about how to write as I do why we write. I try to give students as many exigencies as I can for like what writing might offer. That way, when they leave at the end of the semester, they're not only prepared to write for specific purposes that I think are increasingly linked to capitalism, um, but also see, see writing as a way out of these demands, as a way out of um, the many expectations that kind of befall them, um, both as they continue on through school and certainly after school as they enter the workforce. Um, and that's, you know, that's not considering the students who are already in the workforce, you know, while they're, um, while they're studying. Can you talk about this shift from how to write to why we write and what students learn or, or take away from that, that slight change in, in perspective or understanding of, of what writing is and what writing does. I think that a lot of students come to realize very quickly that they've been doing a lot more writing than they knew in a lot more ways and for a lot longer than they realize. I think also students learn to be much better listeners because they are confronted by 
forms of meaning making that are different from their own. And they're confronted by um, the kind of differential context in which meaning making occurs that, you know, are new to them. <laughs> I spent um, a, a good chunk of time at the beginning of each semester talking about what uh, both empathy and accountability look like in a writing classroom and, and what it means both to, to listen kind of superficially to difference and kind of understand how we are similar and, and different from those around us, but then also um, what we can do or what we should do with differences as we begin to recognize them, especially given that differences are very uh, rarely kind of horizontal differences, but almost always come along with with power differentials that make some students' differences um, more or less valuable than others, at least uh, as you know, students are, that's how students are accustomed to, to viewing them. And so, um, yes, that, that shift from how to write to why we write comes along with just a lot of ethical baggage that I think is, is really important for students, for students to unpack. It just, it takes, it takes a vocabulary and it takes a number of frameworks, um, that kind of shifts students' perspective. You teach a grad-level seminar on transfeminist rhetorics. Maybe you could share your aims, intentions, goals, maybe topics and, and even conversations you hope to cultivate in that classroom space, and, and possibly even the, the readings, assignments, materials that you use. As I told my students, um, as, as I tell my students on the first day that I teach this class, um, it's kind of a lie because there is no such thing as transfeminist rhetorics in the field of rhetorical studies. As a disciplinary object, it does not exist. Um, there is absolutely work being done in trans rhetorics. There was a, a fabulous special issue of, um, of PAFO uh, of about a year ago, um, edited by uh, G. Pat Patterson and K.J. Rawson that, um, you know, kind of claims itself to be the first of its kind in rhetorical studies. But as for transfeminist rhetoric, they, it, it really doesn't exist. And so my intention with the class is to first orient students to feminist rhetoric, which is established and does exist um, from a trans perspective. Um, and then second, I want to offer students what I take to be perhaps the most valuable move that any rhetorical scholar can make to stop looking at rhetorical studies as a thing that needs to be maintained and rather think about rhetoric as a tool that can do other things elsewhere. And so most of the semester is spent taking rhetoric as a methodology and or a set of methods and turning them toward all of the ways that trans people, and we focus primarily on trans women, and um, are, are living and thriving and communicating and surviving and resisting and doing all of the things that make lives full um, and, and worthwhile, so that by the end of the semester, students are not only left with a kind of disciplinary knowledge, you know, a kind of state of the field, but also with 
a, a much greater appreciation for what's being done rhetorically that never gets to be considered rhetorical in the first place. I would recommend Transgender History by Susan Stryker. It's considered a pretty classic work now in the field of trans studies that offers um, not necessarily a history of uh, transgender people, but rather a, a kind of much more uh, focused and recent history of uh, transgender activism and trans organizing as it's occurred under the label transgender, which is really uh, a rather late 19th, 20th century invention. So that, that's a great resource. Also recommend um, a more recent book that has become very famous recently uh, by Jules Gill-Peterson um, that's called Histories of the Transgender Child. Uh, it is a fantastic piece that kind of moves across history, um, sociology, lots of archival work, um, as well as tr trans studies and trans of color critique. Um, that's really, that's really looking at how the kind of figure of the trans child was both imagined, um, in the mid 20th century and continues to inform how uh, a lot of the discourse around both trans adults and the uh, kind of medicalization of trans children continues to play out in the public sphere. So those two books, I think, are really, really great places to start. Logan, you have a book coming out next year called Queer Silence on Disability and Rhetorical Absence. I was hoping that maybe you could talk more about this work and your motivations for this work and what you hope writing teachers and readers gather from it about queer theory, disability studies, and rhetoric. Of course I could talk about queer silence. I would love to talk about my book. I, I'm really excited about this. Um, and I think as, as most people's first books tend to be, it's a really personal project, um, that emerged really out of a, a series of experiences I had, uh, as a child and young adult that have really shaped the way I move through the world. The book broadly, addresses the role of silence in the kind of uh, terrain of queer politics. And then it more specifically dials in on the relationship between disability and the field of queer studies. And the way that I kind of make that zoom, that zooming movement from silence in queer politics to disability in queer studies, is that I make the case that there was something of a conceptual collapse between silence and disability that occurred in the mid-20th century as a result of a lot of uh, gay and lesbian activists' fears that um, their kind of performance of silence um, surrounding their medicalization or the pathologization of homosexuality um, would contribute to them being read as disabled and thus uh, dismissed and kind of disenfranchised. And so there, uh, is a lot of evidence uh, of uh, activists and then more broadly um, kind of community efforts to at once disavow silence as a mode of being in the world for queer people and 
to, by extension, disavow disability as as a legitimate queer way of being in the world. And so I, I show that these kind of twinned or entangled disavows that occurred mid-20th century ultimately led to the emergence of queer as that social and political category that we know it today, uh, a variation of non-normativity that could be reclaimed and that could be politicized um, at the expense of this other section um, or uh, realm of non-normativity disability that cannot be reclaimed, that cannot be politicized, that remain abject in a variety of ways. And then, and so what I, what I hope um, for all of the readers, whether they be teachers, teacher scholars, or lay readers, um, is both an appreciation for the many ways that people are trying to survive. Um, and sometimes the ways that people try to survive isn't as clean um, or necessarily as righteous as we want or expect it to be. You know, sometimes survival looks like lying or complicity or secrecy or laziness. And, and maybe sometimes it is these things, um, but regardless, we all need to survive. Um, and we're all trying to, to, to get by, to feel better and to look hot while doing it. And so I think there's, um, there's a level of generosity that I'm hoping this book can, can kind of inspire, inspire and, and call for. And then second, I, I think that the book also really asks members of the LGBTQIA community, as well as scholars within the field of queer studies, to really begin thinking about anti-ableism more critically um, and to think about how they themselves have been complicit in the disenfranchisement of disabled people, not only historically, but even today. Thanks, Logan. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.